from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW. This is the Pavacit. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to the Pavacit wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepavacit.com and check out our social media pages. Hi, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to my very first episode as an associate editor for The Pavocet. I'm your host, Marcus McNeil, and on today's episode, we're taking the opportunity to introduce everyone to the law school administration. When I was first thinking of this episode, I really had my eye towards the student body uh, because we had a lot of changes in leadership recently. Uh, so I thought it'd be cool, frankly, to introduce our law school administration. But what you'll see and what you'll learn through these various interviews is that the path one takes from law school to the dean's suite is not always linear, and everyone has a different path in how they ended up where they are. Um, and so I, I really hope you get to enjoy walking along the path of the dean, various dean's stories as we learn how they ended up in the dean's suite. A few important notes, this will be a two-part series. This first episode, we will chat with Dean Kirk Walter, the assistant dean of the Weekend JD program, Dean Jim Fott, the associate dean for administration, and at the end of the episode with Dean Stephen Russian, the associate dean of academic affairs. Lastly, the realities of having our law school in the middle of a large city like Chicago, you'll hear ambulances in the, in the background on occasion. I hope they aren't too distracting. Uh, but most importantly, I hope you enjoy learning about the deans as much as I did as I was interviewing them. Enjoy. So starting out, I understand that that is actually a new title for that, you. That is a new title, one that is is uh, still difficult for me to accept. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I was promoted uh, last year okay. uh, to a role. So I only recently learned uh, that Dean was sort of in the line of promotional titles. I always just assumed um, as a student that being a Dean was just like that was the role you were the Dean of Students, for example. You didn't promote into that title. So what were you prior to now being a Dean? So so prior to becoming a Dean, I was a director of uh, uh, the Weekend JD program. Gotcha. Um, And now, given the national prominence of our part-time program and uh, the continuing increase of our student body, um, you know, it's kind of made sense for me to migrate my role slightly more toward a larger scope of of planning out future, planning out, you know, what what the Weekend JD looks like, 5, 10, Gotcha. In the future. So the dean title is not just a title, but also sort of a change in purview. Yeah, as well. yeah. It, maybe not across the board, but yeah. generally speaking, directors, you know, kind of are are charged with with ensuring the day to day. Deans, you know, continue to do so, but are also looking more holistically and more kind of in long term planning. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So speaking of long term planning, then, like, what is the long term plan for the weekend JD program? Because yeah. I know you just won an award from the AALS yeah. for. Yeah. Those who don't know, that's the Association of American Law Schools. Thank you. You know, really right now, um, when Loyola moved into the space, we were one of the first law schools in the country to kind of um, really take our mission of access and apply it and and, and make a different learning environment that would be accessible to folks. Right. 
so when we started the Weekend JD program, there were two other schools that were kind of dabbling in the space. Um, at this point, uh, based a lot on the success of the Weekend JD program, there are schools coming out of the woodworks doing this. Um, that is not in any way a bad thing. Um, arguably, you know, increasing access to legal education is something, you know, we want and we actively encourage and, right. you know, hope that, that, that people are equipped with this information and knowledge. Um, but what we need to do is continue to, to innovate and yeah. see how we can be more effective uh, and how we can, can reach more folks. And so really that is kind of the long-term plan for the Weekend JD is uh, expansion. Oh, excellent. Excellent, excellent. So we talked about the Weekend JD program a bit, so let's talk a bit more about you. Well, let's start with your JD since we're sure. up to the podcast for, for the law school. So you went to Capital University. I did. Uh, so are you from Ohio? I'm from Athens, Georgia. Uh, from Georgia, okay. uh, yeah, from uh, from Athens, Georgia. Uh, went to the University of Georgia for my undergrad. Yeah. Uh, so about five miles away from home. Yeah. Uh, really, um, my decision of where to go to law school was based on a uh, stupid idea that I had. Uh, not stupid in that it is a stupid idea, but stupid for me. Yeah. Uh, that I wanted to do divorce mediation. Um, that was why I went to law school. That is what I wanted to do. Yeah. I built my curriculum around it. I chose the law school. Um, Capital one of the law schools that kind of started really in the sphere of ADR. Um, and they had a particular professor who was known for um, divorce mediation. Yeah. Built my entire curriculum around it. Yeah. Uh, in my third year, was finally able to do you know, a mediation clinic and specifically was working uh, to do divorce mediations. Uh-huh. Went into my first one came out and said, oh, no, 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 no. no. Uh, it was, it was, yeah, yeah, it was not for me. Yeah. Um, and so, so what's a boy to do at that point? But uh, I, I go and start working in elections. Okay. Uh, so I ended up going then to the Secretary of State's office for mm-hmm. the state of Ohio. I see that. She's now on the Supreme Court. She Ohio. is. Yeah. 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 Wait, are you, are you from Ohio? I am not. Okay. Yeah, that's good, good knowledge, though. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So going into school at the University of Georgia, you then knew you were going into law school, which is why you did philosophy. I, I was a philosophy major. Um, there's a uh, not suitable for podcast story of why I chose uh, to be a philosophy major. Uh, I can tell you after the, re- the, the recording stops yeah. or for anyone listening, uh, I'll tell you not on, on, on air, uh, but philosophy uh, was, was really what, what drew me. Um, um, yeah, I wanted to study what was was interesting to me, um, and through that, really kind of um, you know developed an interest in the law. Um, if we can get ridiculous with it, uh, there's um, you know uh, the credo in, in philosophy. There's basically uh, the idea of kind of. Um, uh, tacit consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in the credo, um, you know, Socrates is, is, is in prison and is going to be killed um, because of, of the, the, the laws of the society. And his friends come in and they're about to break him out. Um, and he's like, no, you know, like I lived in this society. And by doing so, you know, I tacitly consented to these laws. And if I'm not actively working to change the laws, yeah. then, you know, I've agreed to them and I need to be bound by them. Exactly. And it just hit me of just like I live in a society with so many unjust laws. Yeah. And like if I don't do something about it, like I'm tacitly accepting and consenting to these laws. Yeah. And so that was that was if I can point to one thing that said law school, that, that was it. Wow. And if you ever need a reason to vote, there you yeah. go. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I was looking sort of 
into your background. I'd say that was like I'm an FBI agent. I was yeah. looking into your background. <laughs> I've got some explaining to do. Right. So you have your master's in library and information sciences. So what made that decision? It's, it's a bit of a left field. Um, one, um, I was a, a bookish queer kid in Georgia, uh, so the library was always you know a refuge for me. Yeah. Um, and so, so that is kind of a, a safe space and. And one that is important to me. Yeah. But then um, when I was working at the Secretary of State's office, two of the areas that I kind of worked with was uh, the, the Board of Voting Machine Examiners. So this is a, a body that reviewed all election equipment. Um, and during my time at the Secretary of State's office, uh, we did something called Project Everest, which was a source code teardown of all of the voting equipment used in the state of Ohio yeah. and really looked at kind of how they're put together, what the safety and security measures are, how easy it is to get around those. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of introduced me to some of the technology pieces that I really enjoyed. Right. Um, and then I was also uh, charged with working on the statewide voter registration database. So this is the database of all voter registrations for every person in Ohio, yeah. about 8 million different entries into this database and just kind of my fascination with data of, you know, how it can be used, how it yeah. can be collected and, and, you know, just, just weird things. So right. in Ohio, um, you know, it, it, we tried at one time to kind of classify by a social security number, but there were still people who were alive uh, when we were doing this project uh, who they were women who were not issued to security numbers because the assumption was that they would not be working. Oh, so they wow. took their husband's security number and then it had a letter A after it. Um, and so like just weird things like that of data of how you, you know, like you can't code for certain things with the right. expectation being that everybody has just digits. Yeah. And then like, oh, well, but these eight people who are still alive have an A at the end of their social security number. So yeah. just, yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. I did not. I mean, you, you learn about these things through just time that, you know, women were always expected to not work or, you know, couldn't own property if they weren't married or if their property became their husband's when they were yeah. married. But just like the idea of not even giving a, giving a social security yeah. number. Yeah. Wow. That well, is, and that they're still alive. And, and, you know, like, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, the world changing it in such a way by, because you were working with 2011. Yeah. So the world changing in such a way, the social security number is so important. And they're exactly. like, well, I <laughs> sort of have one. I got it. I got my husband. Yeah. What yeah. if they get divorced? Yeah. yeah. I guess. Yeah. It, I mean, you got a B. Former social security number. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so you that were in Ohio, worked for the Secretary of State, and then you went down to Alabama, Correct. specifically for the school, or? So, uh, so my husband got a job uh, at the University of Alabama, uh, how to say this, a faculty spouse. Yeah. Uh, it, you're going wherever that person gets a job. Yeah. Um, and so it just so happened at the time, the state of Alabama was looking for somebody to do, um, they had a grant funded project to look and see if uh, polling places were accessible. Um, for people with, using mobility devices or right. individuals with disabilities. And so I was able to get that get that grant yeah. um, and worked uh, both doing the polling place accessibility project, but then also doing advocacy work in general for people with disabilities. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, yeah. so you've done a lot of work in the sort of the voting and election access space. So I imagine then just 
the current time in which we live <laughs> has been a very interesting time for you. Yeah. Um, well, and especially, you know, the pending, uh, you know, Voting Rights Act case uh, before the Supreme Court this right. session um, is centered in Alabama. Yeah. And, and they had oral arguments yesterday. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, while I was doing my polling place access work in Alabama in the same legislative session, um, the legislature of Alabama put in voter ID laws. Uh, essentially, you had to have state-issued voter ID in the form of either a, a voter ID card or a driver's license. Yeah. And in the same legislative session, they then cut the funding for BMVs, which caused about half of the counties in the state of Alabama to just close their BMVs. Wow. Uh, conveniently, there's a, the whole center of the state. It's colloquially known as the Black Belt. It's yeah. where the predominant, you know, uh, communities of color reside. Um, and every single one of those counties was one of the counties that closed their BMVs. Wow. So there were people for whom um, they would have had to drive two hours uh, wow. each way to, to get a voter ID. Yeah. So the blatancy with which, you know, uh, disenfranchisement was happening yeah. is, I, I mean, it's, they couldn't put it in the same bill. Like, right. I, I mean, it, it, it was just so jarring. Yeah. Uh, so to now see the Voting Rights Act under attack in, in Alabama as well, it's just, it's painful. Right. It's painful. Uh, and I always found it interesting when we took constitutional law, when they talked about the uh, shoot. <laughs> the disparate impact versus the uh, express um, intent. purpose or intent. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, we can all look exactly at what's happening and what the purpose and exactly. intent is regardless exactly. of what's stated. So that was always very frustrating as you go through these cases very plainly. But any reasonable person, <laughs> since we love that standard. Yeah, anybody could see that. Yeah. So. And I, I understand what you're saying about being able and ready sort of to move, being a, the spouse of a faculty uh, member. Because I have a, a friend of mine who is probably going to be married to their, their current boyfriend and studying for their PhD. They're also planning on working in higher end. I'm like, that's going to be a, a good luck. So first, what does your husband do, if you don't yeah, mind me asking? So he, uh, he's an English professor. Uh, uh, so he's uh, the chair of the English department at the, the University of Alabama. Oh, excellent. How does that work then now that you... Because you're also now in academia. So <laughs> how do you all make that work? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, I will just say that he is an incredibly patient and kind person. <laughs> uh, if he's listening to this, uh, know that that was said. Uh, but um, we have been, so I've been at Loyola. This is now my sixth year. Um, and so essentially what I do, how my time is structured uh, I work in Chicago for a week, uh, you know, doing uh, the, the on-campus bits for the, the, the weekend JD program. And then the next week I'm remote. Uh, so I work remotely and I go back down to Tuscaloosa. Yeah. So I fly, uh, I'm in the air every Monday, uh, either going or coming. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> that is quite the schedule. <laughs> yeah. Uh, environmentally not the best commute <laughs> I, I you know i do try to give as much as i can to offset my carbon but yeah Fair enough. yeah well, that's that's awesome so how what brought you to then chicago and specifically loyola because the weekend program was about six years old as well right so yeah. you started the program so uh uh, so where we last last left me, uh, I was at the, the Secretary of State's office. Yeah. I moved to Alabama to do the, the grant project. Yeah. The 2012 election happened. Uh, you know, at polling place accessibility was at least marginally improved by my work, I like yeah. to think. Yeah. Um, but then the grant was done. Um, so at that point, 
the university uh, was advertising for a director of student involvement. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly, they were looking for somebody to do like dispute resolution services for their student organizations. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can do that. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, made the, the switch over to the you know higher ed. And it was a steep learning curve, um, just going from active practice to then uh, working with students. Um, but in the course of that job, I uh, was able to then uh, start uh, the, the uh, LGBTQ Center, the first uh, state-funded LGBTQ Center at the, the, in the state of Alabama, okay. um, worked, with, uh, worked with folks there doing, doing that advocacy work. Um, the, the, the areas that I worked there, you know, uh, student organization dispute resolution, LGBTQ center, first generation students and out of state students. Mm -hmm. um, for a university of 35,000 undergrads, it was just, um, you know, all of those areas deserved not just a full-time person, right. but many full-time people. Right. Um, and it just felt a little overwhelming. Right. Uh, as, Added to the fact of, you know, and uh, I, I won't dance around it, uh, the Trump election changed uh, the vibe in Alabama in a very big way. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the combination of wanting to work with a more discreet student population yeah. and uh, honestly to get out of Alabama, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, played in. And so then I saw this job advertised and learned about the program. This is an opportunity for people who wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to get a JD right. to really, you know, get in the fight and, yeah. you know, uh, start to change the world. And so I was like, I'm, I'm all in. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. So one of the things I was curious about as I um, was looking into your background ominously um, <laughs> um, was, so Capital has a Lutheran connection, and of course Loyola has its Jesuit connection. Is faith, if you don't mind me asking, something that plays a role in your life, and is that important for you? Uh, so I, I was raised Catholic. Um, I had a pretty intense uh, separation from the church, uh, uh, and then um, really that didn't play, you know, a after that fact, and kind of tied in with with my coming out pr process. Right. Um, faith was really not that big of a, a of a part of my life. Yeah. Um, I will say this, and I'll I'll, I'll make a plug. Um, there is person on staff at Loyola who has done more to rehabilitate my faith more than any religious ideation. I am still not religiously affiliated in any way, but uh, somebody who has renewed my faith in, in just religious people. Right. Father Jerry is an amazing resource. Right. Um, if, if, if regardless of what you believe, if you're not right. talking to him or at least, you know, on his radar, get on his radar. He yeah. is, he is truly someone who cares. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, faith really didn't play in, into my choice of schools. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I, I am, I'm honestly very glad to have had the opportunity to kind of really get to know Father Jerry in particular, mm -hmm. but to kind of have a little bit of, of, of that rehabilitated uh, for me. Yeah, so. that's very cool. That is very cool. And sort of as we begin to wrap up, because I don't want to take up all your time because I know you're busy. How has going from a practicing attorney, so now being in academia, has it changed your view of the law, um, even though you're not, because you don't teach any courses, right? So I'll, I'll be teaching election law. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So has that changed then your view of the law or your approach to the law? I'll, 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 I'll say it like this. Um, really, you know, if, if I'm going to be as, as honest as I can of, of what kind of fills my bucket of, of, of this job and, and kind of 
why I stopped active practice. Um, you know, I worked in areas that were important to me. Um, you know, election access, um, access for, for individuals with disabilities, LGBTQ folks, um, all of these are incredibly important things. And I do feel I had some successes. Like yeah. there are things that I can point to that just like, yes, it still felt so unfulfilling. Mm -hmm. And when you compare like, okay, well, here is this, this drop in the ocean, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. a kind of effect. Yeah. And so um, it just, it got to be, um, I don't know, I lost my steam and that, you know, I can do as much as I possibly can as a single individual and right. still we are mired in racism, homophobia, yeah. sexism, all of these isms. Right. Um, and so the move to the move to law school in particular was really about, and this is going to sound kind of vampiric and I don't know how else to say it. But if I can contribute to, you know, the uh, weekend JD cohort to around 50 students a year, mm -hmm. if I can somehow help those 50 students, yeah. then when they go out into practice and they start fighting the fight, yeah. then in, even if it's just to a smaller degree, I feel my impact is larger. Mm -hmm. um, it's just kind of a macro effect. And so that's really what, you know, my the, the change between active practice and, and working in academia is recognizing that. I am not going to be the person that goes before the Supreme Court and, and makes this change. Or, yeah. you know, I am, even if I, the best I could be doing in terms of, of uh, advocacy work in, in what these areas, mm -hmm. it would just have this impact. Yeah. I think what has changed is wanting to have bigger impact. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I feel like working with students gets me there. That's so. fair. And especially yeah. if you're giving students who wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to come to law school. Exactly. come to law school and be successful. Exactly. exactly. Um, that is fair. So I guess the two things we'll end this on. One, what is your plug for the weekend program? And two, what is something somebody would be surprised to learn about you? Uh, I'm plugged for the weekend program. Yeah. What I can say, I love my students. Like legitimately, you know, I, I, I will even say it to their faces. I, I love them. Yeah. Um, and what it is that just like amazes me about them they, many of them are, you know, parents and, and, you know, having family responsibilities. Almost all of them work full time. Many of them travel. Uh, so we have one student who flies in. Our furthest student to the east uh, is in London, England and flies in every other weekend. We have a student who lives in Alaska who flies in every weekend. Yeah. So we span at this point, you know, nine time zones. Yeah. Um, if you have that much on your plate, kids, full-time job, travel, and law school, you would be completely forgiven for, pardon my language, but, yeah. but just being, well, I'm not going to say it, but, but, but just being <laughs> short and mean and, you know, yeah. self-centered or something, yeah. you know, and, and no one could fault you for that. Right. But every weekend when the students are here, yeah. there is laughter and kindness and grace showed to each other in such a way that, like honestly makes me feel optimistic yeah. um you know there's there's so much negativity and so you know my, my plug for the weekend is if you are able to take weekend classes you are going to be with a cohort of, of folks who are kind and look around at the world and to, to say anywhere that there is a place where i can guarantee you you will find a room full of kind people yeah i don't know where anywhere else i can say that right so and then oh. yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what might people not know about me? Yeah. Uh, so it's like uh, the fun uh, fact uh, question uh, in the icebreakers uh, in our legs. Oh, gosh. Uh, the thing 
that I did for LSCS not that long ago, and and thankfully somebody had gone before me. Uh -huh. uh, but the thing that I shared, and I'll share here because I can't uh, think of anything else, is I'm a bit of a Sudoku freak, and I'll show you because I I feel this is worth uh, showing. But my stats right now on Sudoku right now on the challenging where where is it? Anyhow, the 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 challenging thing. My stats uh, I have 232 in a row on the uh, the most difficult setting on Sudoku. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, I don't know why that's impressive, but you, you know, know what? what? I'm going to take it. You take <laughs> the wins where you got them. I feel it, and I love it. Well, no, I appreciate your time, and this has been delightful and insightful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I really appreciate talking to you. That previous interview was an interview with the Assistant Dean of the Weekend JD Program, Dean Kirk Walter. Our next interview is with Dean Jim Falk, the Associate Dean for Administration. And one quick note, you'll notice that the audio will be very different between the two interviews, and that, you know, frankly, I am uh, still learning in terms of editing audio correctly. Um, and so as the semester continues, I will only get better with time. So please bear with me. On to the next interview. We are here with uh, the Associate Dean for Administration, uh, Jim Font, or James Font. Do you prefer Jim or James? Jim. Jim. You yeah. prefer Jim. Excellent. Yes. Um, I don't so, think about it much. <laughs> fair enough. So we will um, sort of just start at the beginning. So you, of course, came here to Loyola uh, and graduated in 1976. So what? how did you decide you wanted to come to law school, be a lawyer? Oh, boy. You know, it was a real interesting time. I went to college in the, in the late 60s and graduated in 71. And you know, this was what we think of as the Vietnam era, mm. and it was a time of uh, real change in the country. And I, I don't—I think that our, you know, our generations today can understand that because we're going through the same thing now. But mm. back then, it was—you uh, know—I think we were all kind of activated a little bit to, to do something with our lives. Mm. I, you know, I, I didn't—I yeah, didn't know any lawyers. I, it just never occurred to me earlier in life, but. Uh, as I started graduating, I noticed that some of my classmates, my good friends, were doing this, going to law schools. I took a year off and then started here at Loyola. You know, I liked it. I enjoyed it here. And it, it just uh, it felt like a, the right thing to do. Yeah, oh, that's fair. And, and we, they were, you know, they, we began to understand the importance of the issues that were going around in terms of justice and you know, how, how people are treated. And I think it, it uh, gave us great incentive. And I was one of them to, to get to continue in law school and then see what we could do afterwards. Right, and right. It, it was a great picking up these skills. Yeah, you know, I just never knew such a thing existed as a contract. You know? Right, right. So. That's excellent. So when you came into law school, did you um, know what you wanted to do with your law degree, or were you trying to? You just came to law school and figured you'd figure out yeah the rest later. That, that's it. I you know I had no idea, and I I. Came in and uh, no, I think what I what I thought would happen um, was that I'd see and eventually be attracted to some area of law or something, or then an opportunity would arise uh, one way or another. I didn't have uh, an, an initial path at all, and I, you know, I, I I talk to our students about that too. I mean, right. a lot of people feel like they have to have Come out with the plan. their right their 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 profession and their their, their goal uh, right in front of them yeah. in the first year, mm -hmm. and they. they 
strive to achieve that. And if they don't, there's something wrong. But that's not how it works, I think, for most people. You, you know, I, I tell people, uh, if you don't change your mind two or three times while you're here at law school, we're not doing our job. <laughs> right, really. right. No, that is fair. Yeah. And so after you graduated, you then worked for three years? Yes. And what were you doing? I worked in a family law firm. Okay. And um, it was, again, you know, it was working with uh, primarily uh, broken marriages. Mm-hmm representing one couple or the other, or one, one partner or the other. And, um, you know, that was something that was both difficult and interesting mm-hmm. at the same time. And the part about it that I, I, t- I took away really mostly was that I was in court practically every day. Oh, yeah. And I honestly, I never dreamed in a million years that that would happen, but I was in court every day. And, yeah. You know, I kind of learned my way around. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Even yeah. as a young associate, you were in court almost every day. After it? couple months they gotta they need you yeah that is fair that is fair i think you know as a current law student and while i plan on going into transactional work myself even with folks planning on going into litigation unless you're doing like going to be a public defender you know you're told ah you might not see the court inside of a courtroom for a while or at least not as the an attorney sitting there at the table well i you know that that's one of the changes that I think that's occurred in the profession over the years. There's probably less of that, but there are still great opportunities in a lot of different areas. But, the, you know, we found other ways yeah. to successfully resolve disputes since I was in law school. You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, fair. And uh, that's taken away from, a, from some of the court activity. Yeah, no, that's fair. And so you have then, so after those three years, of course, and you were with the same firm those three years. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, after those three years, you then came back to Loyola and have yeah. been here ever since. Yeah, August of 79. Yeah. I, where's the time going, huh? Yeah, right. So how did you decide to, to leave practice and come back to Loyola? Oh, boy. Um, Let me go back <laughs> a ways here. Well, um, I, the, the, the dean at the time here was uh, Bud Murdoch, yeah. Professor Murdoch, mm-hmm. whom I had in class. He was a wonderful guy. And, um, you know, he had uh, kind of thrown this out there one day, mm-hmm. you know, asked me, you know, like, what are you doing? Yeah. And he mentioned about coming back here to Loyola. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I thought, boy, that's an opportunity. I just I can't believe he said that, really. Yeah. You know, it's just, I just dwelled on that for a short while. And... Uh, Trying to think now how what the transition was, but uh, it, it was in you know, the spring of '79 that he asked me about that, and mm-hmm. I ended up starting in August of '79. I just thought that it would be uh, something that I really would enjoy doing. I, I'd learn another set of skills, and I think most importantly, I was very confident that I'd be working with people that most of whom I knew, my mm-hmm. teachers, yeah. and I really liked them. Yeah. You know, these were people who really were dedicated to uh, their students and to building their careers and uh, develop professional skills. And it was an exciting time. And there were just, there, it was a great group of people. And then the thought of working with students, I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had no idea what that meant mm-hmm. because I came on and that was pretty much, you know, what I did. I was the only other administrator here, basically. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have much in the way of associate deans, although we did have um, one for academics. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Nina Appel at the time was the associate dean for academics. And we, you know, it was a very small administration, and we learned everything. So it was it was great fun. It was easy to dedicate yourself to it mm-hmm. and be committed to the work. And yeah. I just, I, you know, it's it's really easier to work when you're committed to the work. Right, right. 
And so it's easier to work when you're working with, with friends, too. Right. No, yeah. that is fair. So what, um, and this might sound weird, what do you find sort of more fulfilling than the, the, the growth and the work with the law school? And we'll come back to the growth of the law school through the 43 years you've been here, but yeah. uh, the growth and, and development of the law school itself or sort of the students that you see come through the halls every three years? Oh, it, it's clearly the students. Yeah. You know, I, I just, you um, you kind of take the growth for granted, mm. you know, in and, and, and raw numbers, in terms of raw numbers. Yeah. You know, we might be a couple hundred students more a year. Mm. Uh, one big difference is that we had an evening division mm. up until about, I don't know, 12 years ago, 10 years ago, um, when, it, when it transferred to the weekend yeah. division. Mm. But, uh, you know, when there is an evening division at work, people are here from morning till midnight. Yeah. It was a, it was a great uh, environment to be in. Mm-hmm. So the students really, were, it was very rewarding. And we got to know them pretty well back then. You yeah. know, and there are a lot of reasons for that, I, yeah. I suppose. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I, I count so many of them as good friends to this day. I see them all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good to go to. It's fun to go to uh, alumni events. Yeah. Everybody should go to their alumni events because <laughs> we have a good tradition of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. And I so sort of jumping back to sort of the beginning. So you went to Notre Dame and then you came here to Loyola. So is the, because of course Notre Dame is, is a notable Catholic university and, and so are we. Is faith important to you in terms of both where you're working or and just individually? Um. Yes, the, the answer to that is yes, but I didn't know, you know, I, I learn about that. I continue to learn about that connection, Yeah. you know, because um, I was raised, uh, you know, I went to all the Catholic schools. I, yeah. I, I just, it's funny, I, I uh, went to Catholic grade schools. I went to an all-boys high school mm-hmm. in Detroit. Yeah. I went to an, then we family moved to Toledo, Ohio, went to an all-boys high school there, mm. went to Notre Dame when it was all men, yeah. came to Loyola. In my first class, I sat next to a woman in school for the first time in my life, <laughs> and that woman is now a judge, and my daughter is working for her. Really? It's clerking for her at the Daily Center right this minute. Okay? Yeah, wow. That How is awesome. That's a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, wow. but... but uh, yeah, you know, it's it's an environment I'm comfortable in. Mm-hmm. It's an environment that I know something about. Yeah. And it's an environment, you talk about growth mm. in terms of, uh, you know, issues of uh, faith and justice and, and just openness. I yeah. think, you know, this this environment that they call Jesuit environment, that has really, I think it's really continued to grow in the mm-hmm. time that I've been here. Yeah. So. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And one of the, you know, I was curious as I was uh, preparing for the interview, uh, you, it's clear you're very service oriented, both to students and to the organizations you serve, um, both the Executive Ethics Commission for the state of Illinois and then the Lawyers Assistance Program for the yeah. state of Illinois. The uh, Lawyers Assistance Program you've been on since 1992, of course. Right. So you have a very strong sort of service orientation. Is that rooted in your faith or is it just who you are as a person? Or I guess that's a weird question being that faith can be so yeah. intricately tied to Honestly, who you are. Um, these things were, they were really the product of opportunities more than anything. Okay. You know, these yeah. are, I, in uh, 1992, um, the Lawyer's Assistance Program was about 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And the people who ran it, the, the people who founded it were like heroes mm-hmm. among judges and lawyers. Yeah. Very wonderful, prominent people in the profession. And they, they just needed somebody from a law school. 
to come. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, a fellow by the name of Mike Howlett, who was a judge and who taught here, had been active with it, with the Lawyers Assistance Program. And he he just said, would you, why don't you, would you like to do this? Would yeah. you like to join us at the meetings and so forth? Because we... We need somebody who can say something about law schools because we're going to receive more students. Right. I said sure. So I got in. It really became just a wonderful place to be. We, you know, we'd meet every uh, every month or so, but we'd have cases coming through, and we'd have to con- confer about those things. Great people, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, that we had a lot of our meetings here at Loyola. I think that was one way of my giving, you know, being able to give back to them. And then I, I, I served as a president for one year. And, mm-hmm. It's a one-year position and continued for uh, for several years. Yeah, um, and uh, the ethics commission was again one of these opportunities. One of our alums had, without me knowing, had nominated me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there were, again, there were some wonderful lawyers and judges on that. And I thought, well, this is a great way to get to know them and see what's going on in the state of Illinois. And that was about the time that I think our group was responsible for the problems that Governor Blagojevich had. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, in Illinois, yeah, or, or we were connected with it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It was a good time to be there. Yeah, fair enough. And I saw you were president for both of those organizations at the same time. Was that sort of that just happened? Yeah, just happened. Yeah, huh? just happened. Um, so switching sort of back to the law school, then. So you've been here for forty-three years. Uh, you've been in administration that entire time, but you've also taught classes. Yeah, you know, and that, again, um, you know, that was. Uh, you know, that just kind of came, I think, with being here. You hear long enough that you might have something to say. Yeah. But if it, the, the classes that I did, that I taught, it was really a program. Mm-hmm. I ran the extern program here for okay. about 25 years. Okay. And um, th- that was when we initiated having a classroom component with it. Because when I was in law school, uh, they started the extern program, but you just went out and worked for a judge or worked for the state's attorney or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's no class involved. Right. And then the ABA, I think, uh, interceded and uh, thought it would be a good idea to have a class connection with that. And so I kind of made up a you know, 14-week class that yeah. would meet for a couple hours a week for all the externs. We got together and uh, we talked about various topics and, and the students participated in directing the topics. Mm-hmm. It was fun. And then um, then the great gift of my life was the London program, yeah. uh, which we've had here since 1988. Mm-hmm. And um, fun story with that is that uh, you're, you're familiar with the National Institute for Trial Advocacy, NIDA is what it's called. It's, yeah. it's a training company for, um, for, for lawyers. Mm-hmm. And they started reaching out internationally in the mid-80s. And they would invite uh, English barristers over to the United States here to train American lawyers along with our American faculty. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a, a classmate who uh, was a judge, and she was invited to be one of the teachers in Florida in this NIDA program. Well, they had uh, two barristers, and she taught with them for the entire week. And the barristers finally said to her, you know, you really should have your students come over to London and, and observe us. We really are quite wonderful, you know. <laughs> and this person came back, uh, she came back to uh, Dean Appel, Nina mm-hmm. Appel, who was the dean at the time, and said, Nina, you know, we should really send our law, our law students over to London to observe the barristers. They really are quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. And uh, two days later, the dean said to me, Jim, you know, we really should send our law students over to London to, with the barristers because they really are wonderful. <laughs> I, sa- I said, well, I, I'd be happy to participate in this because at the time I was a... Uh, courier for DHL over to London, yeah. over to overseas. Yeah. And I would I would get a, these free trips 
and I company all, all this stuff over there in an mm-hmm. airplane, and they would pay for it, and I they put me up for two days. Yeah. And I did this maybe two or three times a year on weekends or when I could fit time away. Mm-hmm. I said, Nina, I'm going to London very soon. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, why don't you do this and try to get a program together for next year? So we started the first program in December, right after Christmas of 1988. And we've been going ever since then with a couple uh, interruptions, COVID and so forth. But right. It's been great. No, and so I teach a class with that. And I, you know, I, I just, I've enjoyed that very much. Yeah. No, I imagine. And... Prior to the the program, did you have other than sort of going to with the DHL courier? Did you have any connection to London prior to that, or any well, deep affinity for it? I guess you know um, a little bit. I you know I had uh, I had traveled a lot. Uh, I was a in my previous life I was a tennis player. Mm. I played at Notre Dame and I was the head pro at a country club here in Northbrook, Illinois, for seven years okay. during during my law school. That's what I did for to pay for law school. Oh, wow. And I was a member of the United States Professional Tennis Association and they had these tours mm. that I, I took advantage of and I played in Europe uh, you know, a few times. Mm-hmm. In London of course a lot. Don't confuse my tours with the with the big shots. You know? <laughs> Although I did I did play at Wimbledon once, but not uh, in the big tournament. Yeah, you know? that's still. And uh, it was a great experience. So that I got a lot of good international travel out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. So I guess one thing that has struck me through the course of the interview so far is you talk a lot about sort of the opportunities that present themselves, and you it was like I took advantage of this opportunity and and. Um, and then just sort of led somewhere. Yeah. Um, so sort of how do you, when you advise students, yeah. um, what do you say about opportunity and, and how to maximize sort of both the opportunity right. available to you, but how to take advantage of it? Well, I, I just, number one, I think it's, I, I do think about this mm-hmm. uh, with, with some purpose involved for our students. I do think that, um, number one, you, you have to be open to developing new relationships and to communicating with uh, your peers. Uh, I think that law school presents a great opportunity for that. I mean, I can go back over my law school experience and I can name you, you know, dozens of people that I just I had some kind of a good relationship in a professional relationship. Mm-hmm. I worry sometimes that that doesn't happen as much mm-hmm. these days. You know, that, uh, you know, uh, and so I, I think that being open you know, being communicative, finding ways to get to know people, and then both in and outside of school. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, uh, you know, you'd be surprised uh, how, how small our legal community is here in Chicago. I mean, mm-hmm. I forget the number of 19,000 or 20,000 lawyers, but everybody knows everybody, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, I think it's important to, to know people, not for a manipulative reason, right. where you take advantage of them or whatever, Mm-hmm. But you know, to kind of share your experience, share your life with them, and, and uh, you, you hope that you, that comes back in, in the form of a good relationship because it lasts in this uh, in this profession. It really does. Right. So, um, and that that's the, the point I would make. I mean, that that's the kind of thing that for me opened up a lot of opportunities. Right. Just uh, you know, being open to it. Maybe sometimes it takes a risk to go up to somebody and say, "I saw you talk yeah. uh, last week, and I introduced myself." Or I saw you in court last week, and I thought you were great. But uh, yeah. let, let me let me introduce myself. Whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think there's too much of a downside to doing stuff like that. Right. No, that is fair. So speaking of like um, the change that you've seen in sort of the way that students interact, and of course over the course of forty three years, 
so much about the world has changed. Yeah. Um, and of course, we're really seeing it now, and especially in our in this profession, um, or the profession anyway that I hope to soon join. Yeah. Um, and traditionally, it's it seems that as a profession, it's slower to move than perhaps other other parts of the of the world. Um, so, I guess from your perspective, where where do you see the profession going given the current pressures and and, and changes that are are happening? Yeah, um, I think we're going to go through a tough stretch, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One is the COVID environment. Uh, has permitted people uh, to work remotely, which in many ways has benefited them in, in their personal lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you, know, you know, the jury's out on that as to, in terms of uh, professional development. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other, of course, is uh, the use of technology, which is so, again, beneficial in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And it is the kind of thing that gets in the way sometimes of developing relationships or whatever. I can understand how yeah. there's a benefit and a, and a, and a detriment to, to, you know, both of those things, right. really, the, the remote work and the use of technology to a high degree. I think also that, uh, and there are experts on this who can probably chime in a little more, uh, with a little more detail, but I, you know, I do think we're maybe finding ways to resolve disputes outside of our, our traditional court system, mm. you know, I think, again, uh, much of that is a very good thing, um, but it, that's going to change a little bit of the face of, of the legal profession, yeah. uh, and it has been, I think, for a while, Yeah, and I don't think that's a bad thing, really, you know, but, uh, you know, so I, I, I guess, uh, you know, looking ahead 10 or 20 years, I think we're going to see a different kind of a environment, yeah. um, you know, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like you finish your day's work at the office and, and go to the saloon and have a beer, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like uh, like it used to be. Yeah. So people are a little different. Yeah, no, that is fair. That is fair. One thing that um, sort of struck me uh, in your bio on the school's website is that uh, it says you've written about the status of women in law schools and then controversial student organizations. Oh, my goodness. And so I was just, like, that was a very sort of specific sort of sentence. Yeah. And so I was curious, like, what? I, you know, that's, boy, you're kidding. I did that back in, uh, boy, in the 80s. Mm. And um, at the time, I th- there was, you know, the, the women's organizations, there, there was a topic that uh, was an interesting one, and the dean and I talked about it at the time, and she you know, thought it would be a good idea to write an article about it. It goes back to the women's rights being developed in the 60s mm-hmm. and, and moved on. And then, I, you know, I didn't have any great insights. It was really kind of a history book. Gotcha. But I thought it was, it was uh, a good thing to do, and I really enjoyed it. Controversial student organizations. Uh, again, um, you know, I, I, I there, there was not much to say about it. You yeah. know, at the time, um, I think that uh, the topic was one that, uh, that law schools were just maybe starting to right. engage themselves in. Right. Again, as the result of uh, student activism, yeah. which I think is a positive thing. Right. You know, that, right. that resulted from the Vietnam era, mm-hmm. and it started to reveal itself as we got into the you know, late 70s and 80s. Right, right. And students have a voice, they had a voice, and sometimes it was, you know, the kind of thing that the establishment wasn't really prepared to hear. Yeah, that's fair. But you know, looking back, it's a good thing. Yeah. You know, I don't think there has been any long-term damage from right. this, from the idea that uh, you know, young people observe the world maybe in, uh, with a different nuance. Right. And, and they, they 
want to be heard and they should be heard. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. So, I would, so in terms of controversial student organizations, even women in law school, um, and I'll circle back to that one. Um, so is this where like you had like affinity groups starting to try to be put together and perhaps like or the topics. Federalist Society, yeah, yeah. very topic based. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. Um, yeah, I think what we're talking about, I, I, as I as I recall, mm-hmm. now, uh, because it's been thirty years since I looked at this <laughs> yeah. thing. Um, I, I think what we were talking about was what we what we call affinity groups today, and I, yeah. I think part of it was the ones who were politically involved. Oh, you know, okay. again, there was uh, a time during this era and a little before mm-hmm. when I was writing it that there was there was some uh, political discord. Yeah, and students. Played a role, you know. I, I I think part of it was to remind us all the importance of free speech. Yeah, that is fair. And um, so the women in law school, it, it also struck me because Loyola, we have a high percentage of women in our law yeah. school, right? Yeah. And I don't I don't know what the percentage is, but I know it's more than fifty percent. Oh, certainly, yeah, it's, it's our incoming class is about sixty five percent. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. And um, that's as high as it's been. But I think really, I started paying attention to that probably in the early 80s mm-hmm. as we got up to close to 50 50 yeah and then who knew the next couple of years yeah. the women are at 54 percent of the total student body and then 55 mm-hmm. and yeah. it, it, it lingered there for a long time but in the last couple of years I, I think we've seen a real uh, surge yeah of women applicants yeah and women lawyers mm-hmm. and uh, you, you know I just I, I, again I think that's been a wonderful yeah. And has, um, is the high percentage, I know women are coming into the profession at higher rates now, but um, like 65% of an incoming class of women, is that unique to Loyola or is that just across the board through the law schools? Um, we will know that. I, I, you know, that's something I should know, but the, uh, yeah. the, the ABA reports are due next week. Yeah. Every law school has to set forth their annual totals, but, uh, I don't think it's unusual to have uh, a majority of women in law, American law schools. I think our number is probably one of the higher ones. In yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is fair. I once sat in, um, and it was last year during one L. Uh, of course, our, our classes, our um, sections were huge. So I just went around and counted the number of men and women, and I just remember that. I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was outside, you know, it was a, a huge difference. Yeah. And so I wondered if that carried across the student body. And then just like, as you pay attention, certainly now that we have more people in the law yeah. school, uh, it seems to hold true. I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, and of course, the next big frontier is uh, women's pay. Yeah, yeah. Which is decidedly mm-hmm. non-competitive with what guys get. Yeah, so even in the legal profession. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's wrong. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm talking about the legal profession. Oh, yeah, fair. And, and the other uh, metric is uh, partnerships, mm. you know. Uh, again, they're, they're really lagging behind in, in uh, partnerships. Yeah. And I'm sure they're debated all the time about why. Yeah. But um, that is something that I think that this next generational move will involve something like getting, you know, proper compensation for the same work right. in partnerships. Yeah. Yeah, that is fair. Uh, and then sort of the final, it's sort of related to that, but it's uh, given your long history with the school uh, and you've seen sort of where it started. And you said at the time it was just the dean, you and, and uh, 
associate dean for academic mm-hmm. affairs at the time, uh, and you know staff has grown and student body has has grown since then. Um, what's your hope for Loyola Law, sort of in the future, continuing to grow, or sort of stay where it's at but establish more premier programs? Yeah, um, uh, I, I mean the growth part, you know, there'll, there'll always be a way to take care of that. Yeah, you know, um, but you know, you do look at our service mission, you look at how we're responding to that here at the law school. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I think there is room for growth in those programs, a little more outreach right. in ways um, that uh, that serve the serve the public in right. that form. Um, so that that's one part of my hope. And the other part, really, is uh, if we can get through this difficult time we've had here, in the last few years, where um, you know the, the pandemic has has divided us from um, from one another in mm. some ways, and there are reasons for that, of course, and we see we, we know those reasons every day. But uh, I would really like to, to see our community come back mm. together in yeah. a way that may have existed a few years ago and for a long time. You know, students feel comfortable. Yeah, you know, all of them. Yeah. Not, you know. Many of them are, are okay with this stuff, but I want students to feel comfortable every step of the way here. Yeah. In the in the court, uh, classroom, outside the classroom, with one another, well, with the administration, with the faculty. I right. like to. I, I love it when somebody comes into my office mm-hmm. because I think that was uh, characteristic right. of, of the way things were a while ago. As I feel like it's been t- it was taken from us. Yeah. But the students now, I think they they. Uh, we need to encourage them to, to get to know their faculty a little better. Yeah, you know, develop those relationships right, a little better. Right. Because I think that uh, we all benefit from that. I yeah. mean, I, you you go back and you think about people who have, have gotten their professional development or their jobs yeah. or you know something through a relationship that yeah. they built with a faculty member. Mm. You know, and uh, I'd like to see that continue. I'd like to see that part grow. Right. No, that is fair. And the final question that's sort of related, that sorry, I came and this will be the final question, I promise, (laughs) Um, is how to to bridge that gap, right? Because we have students that, um, you know, whether a professor says something in the classroom or another student says something in the classroom, because, you know, obviously this is law school, so we deal with difficult subjects. Uh, but if a student, at some point, a student will, you know, perhaps feel unsafe or yep. just not heard in the classroom, if you will. Yeah. Um, so how do we, as a school and as a community, close those gaps again that yeah. might have been created for the, the racial strife that has been sort of sure. brought to the forefront through the past couple of years, but also the pandemic sort of yeah. making people seemingly forget yeah, social. Yeah, those social, are connected. Those yeah, things yeah. are connected. Yeah. 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 I, uh, First of all, that's our job. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's our responsibility mm-hmm. to do everything we can to build trust. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think we have to get more familiar with, with that and how that's done. Mm-hmm. Then, then uh, you know, uh, I think that's step number one. Yeah. And, um, again, I, you know, the students, um, if, if they're unsure, uh, they have every reason maybe to be unsure, and we want them to just be open to the possibility that mm. there might be somebody there 
with an open door yeah. <laughs> who uh, is, is more than delighted to act as a mentor or a friend or you know somebody who has been through the, a lot of these things before mm. um, because I think that you know that that kind of a development in relationships is a very positive one and I think the students in many ways would be surprised to learn how many of our faculty members and administrators have gone through many of these same things yeah. and that are quite familiar with it and can empathize very clearly with the difficulties that you described that yeah. students I know are having today. Right. Right. Fair enough. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your time. The previous interview was with Dean Jim Fott, the Associate Dean for Administration. And this final interview of this episode is with Dean Stephen Russian, Associate Dean of Academic Affairs. Enjoy. Where we'll start is just like where you're at now. So you're the Associate Dean of mm-hmm. Academic Affairs. Um, so tell us what sort of that means. What is your purview? Yeah, so um, almost every law school has someone that's in my role. So it's a pretty common role at American law schools. Um, my job is normally to manage academic policy, to handle scheduling. So whenever you get the schedule from the registrar, I'm the one behind the scenes trying to contact every professor and make sure we get everything lined up, uh, making sure that uh, we have policies in place for professors, making sure that we have everything handled with Maine University, um, trying to keep consistency with university policies and informing people at Loyola Law School what the university policies are, um, as well as everything uh, from like vaccine and booster management and yeah. ensuring we have compliance with other kind of policies. So those are my jobs. Um, and in addition to that, I still teach and write and do all the kind of normal things that a professor does. Right. So the role by itself is, is massive, it sounds like. So at some point, did you want the role? Did somebody ask you to do it? Because I know last year, Professor Waldeck was in the role mm-hmm. uh, and now you are. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm a believer that if you're uh, if your organization asks you to do, to do something, you try to help. So I was asked to do it. Um, so I'm happy to step up and do that role for a bit while I'm useful. So yeah. I don't think it was something I came into to my career path imagining this, would I, this is what I would be doing. Yeah. I certainly didn't imagine that I'd be managing schedules and vaccine compliance. That was not <laughs> what I was trained to do or what I thought I would be doing uh, professionally. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, you do what you're sometimes what your uh, organization needs you to do. And this is what they need from me, from me right now. That is fair. Now, for the sake of the folks listening, and so I had to do a research project where I was looking at uh, the deans and the associate deans mm-hmm. uh, of academic affairs of all the law schools. And doing that, I, and looking at a lot of dean profiles, a lot of current deans were former associate deans of academic affairs. Is a deanship in your in your future? Oh, I have no idea. That's something <laughs> I uh, have really on my radar at this point. Right yeah. now, I'm more focused upon... Uh, making sure that I can get us through this school year. And then um, I'm also just really focused on my classes and my research. That's what I love. You know, the reason I got into this line of work is because I love the research component. I love teaching students. Um, That's the stuff that I love doing. So um, I'm not sure I'm really prepared to think about any career that would take (laughs) me away from that for any substantial period of time. That, That is fair. Uh, I almost felt like that was a, you know, when people ask somebody, are you running for president? And they're like, oh, I'm happy with the job yeah, I have now. Much lower stakes. <laughs> much, much, much lower stakes, right? Uh, no, that's fair. So sort of speaking to then like why you got into law school and one thing I didn't actually know, you have your PhD in jurisprudence and social policy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Um, so what got you interested in law school and then what took you to your path of your, of your JD or of your PhD? Yeah. So I was always interested in doing something related to the loss from a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I ended up in law school for many of the same reasons that a lot of folks here are in law school because mm-hmm. uh, the career appealed to me, um, you know, as background, I did like high school debate. I was one of those students yeah. growing up. So it felt like a natural fit to me at that stage in my life when I was much younger. In terms of how I ended up in academia, that's more complicated. Um, I did not come into law school. I don't think almost anyone goes to law school with the imagination to be a law professor. That wasn't part of my plan at all. Um, You know, I got into becoming a law professor for a couple of reasons. So uh, one thing was that during law school, I had a chance to work as a research assistant, something that a lot of students here at Loyola do. Um, And I worked with a professor who was studying the New York City Police Departments and their efforts to fight crime and some of the constitutional rights violations that were occurring in that process, um, particularly the Floyd case. Um, and that kind of exposed me to academic research for the first time in my career. And I found that fascinating. Yeah. I, I loved doing it. I loved working with this professor on their book. Um, I loved working with them on their articles and just kind of learning about how to methodologically do that kind of research. Yeah. Um, it was fascinating to me. As background as well, um, I grew up in a household where uh, my dad was a police officer. Right. Um, my parents are originally from um, Illinois, but we lived in Texas. So we were kind of, a, kind of separate and apart from a lot of our extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up around my dad as a cop and a lot of his friends who were also police officers. Um, so it's kind of, you know, um, maybe not that shocking that I ended up studying policing for a living because it's something I was exposed to at a young age. Although what I do actually professionally now is I focus on the accountability side. So like regulating police officers, disciplining police officers, reform, investigating allegations of racial profiling, kind of empirical studies surrounding that. Um, so I think... When I did that kind of research assistant work in law school, um, it just kind of set off an interest in me that I hadn't had in anything else, really. Um, So soon thereafter, I decided to, uh, well, first off, I also did some um, work as a, um, what we called at Berkeley, a graduate student instructors, where I was basically a TA for some undergraduate classes in legal studies. I also worked as a lecturer teaching some classes to folks getting criminal justice degrees and soon to be police officers in San Francisco yeah. while I was a 3L and then in graduate school and then I decided to get a PhD because yeah. uh, I really wanted to have a tool set that I didn't have at that point because yeah. a lot of the work that I wanted to do was about assessing the impact of uh, changes in law on officer behavior, judges' behavior, the behavior of other actors in the criminal justice system yeah. and that requires a set of like a, a toolbox of methodological expertise that I didn't have. Yeah. Um, and to do that work well, I kind of needed to get that. So yeah. decided to do that. Decided to get a PhD. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that is incredible. And so one of the things I was because I have heard from other students who are taking your police accountability class mm-hmm. that your father uh, is a cop. Is a cop or was a cop? Was a cop. Yeah. Was a cop. Retired now. How does especially working in a, a police accountability and at least as an outsider, sort of looking in in terms of um, in terms of cops and. I say cop supporters, but I, I mean, but cop supporters and, and family members and things like that, like the blue line type of ideal seems in, um, in conflict with the idea of doing police accountability research. So how does that, like, how does that interplay in the family? Does it create any conflict? And certainly we're not, you don't to get too deep, right? But like, just at a surface level, does that create conflict or is it, yeah. uh, does your father and his friend sort of understand that you know what you're doing and 
Yeah, I'm lucky to have a father who is supportive no matter what I do. So yeah. <laughs> very lucky about that. You know, yeah. it does create some uh, some tense conversations around Thanksgiving sometimes oh, about you know fair. disagreements about certain policy matters. But by and large, um, I think I'm lucky to have a father who's very understanding of the kind of work that I do, the importance yeah. of it, That's and good. why that kind of policy work and research has to be done. Right. Um, and also, I would say you know. We sometimes, I think understandably, assume that because someone is a police officer, they're not receptive to ideas of reform, regulation, that's oversight. Fair. Yeah, I would just say that's not always true. Yeah, um, no, many people uh, who are in that profession really do care deeply and do want to make the institution better yeah. and, and do support a good deal of the reform efforts yeah. uh, the folks are working on. So yeah. you know, I'm, I'm uh, both lucky, but also I'm lucky to have a father who I think is understanding of the work that I do. Yeah, that's excellent. That is excellent. And so sort of jumping back into, mm -hmm. so I, I saw that you went to Columbia and then transferred to Berkeley. Yeah. So what, what was the idea there? Because um, I'm always interested in what, or why people decide to transfer between schools, and particularly because you had, I mean, Columbia is not not a good school, you know, it's a great school, so is Berkeley. Yeah, so. pretty simple. person I was dating got into Berkeley to not get into Columbia, so uh, they were also in law school at the same time, so he transferred so that he and I could be at the same school. That's really the entire answer. We <laughs> That's broke awesome. Out. Happily married now, uh, <laughs> yeah. years later, but yeah. uh, that was the reason I ended up at Berkeley. So kind of uh, kind of happenstance. Yeah. Just, you know, life takes you different places, and it's not just about you know, academic reputation right. or um, the school name or something. A lot of it's about you know being happy and finding what matters most to you, and family's often part of that. But, yeah. Yeah. Didn't quite work out. Yeah. Uh, but I ended up in a great place. Yeah. Because yeah. then you did your PhD in Berkeley as well, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then what brought you then to Chicago? So you were in Texas and then you were in California. Yeah, yeah. so um, I worked at a couple of schools prior to Loyola. So mm -hmm. um, I worked at the University of Illinois, uh, their College of Law, for two years uh, as a visiting professor. Um, I also worked um, as an assistant professor at the University of Alabama. Um, and then eventually I lateraled here to Loyola. So uh, that's been my path to go from where I was to uh, where I am today. Yeah. Um, and yeah, very happy to be here. It's yeah. a great place to live, and um, it's a great school to work at for sure. Gotcha. Because so I was speaking to uh, Dean Walter yesterday. Mm -hmm. Of course, his husband is is an academic as well, and so yeah. he was saying you got to be prepared to sort of move sort of anywhere. Is that how you ended up in Alabama? Or was there specific interest down in Alabama? No, I mean, you got to really pre be prepared to have some geographical flexibility to the best of your ability yeah. if you're going to be in academia. That's just the truth of the matter. Yeah. What I tell people is that it's one of the downsides if you choose that as a career yeah. is you have to have some flexibility and you rarely get to live precisely where you want. Right. You can have some restrictions if you want to, but right. it's going to limit your options. Yeah. Um, it is a challenge. It's a yeah. challenge for relationships, challenge for family. Um, and it's just a limitation of the job. You know, yeah. there's not a bunch of jobs in the field. There's only a small kind of finite number. Right. Now, I was fortunate in undergrad to have served on several search committees for mm -hmm. um, several positions. And so it, that's one thing that I noticed early on. It's like, you know, you see somebody who like lived in Alaska, but then lived in Utah and lived somewhere. It's like, yeah. surely that wasn't part of a plan. And so I was like, no. <laughs> Life takes you unexpected places. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I know we're... I'm very happy with where I'm at and very happy with the city and the community that I live within. You know? Yeah, excellent. Um, and one of the things we were talking about before we started recording is just how the, uh, you write a lot. I think it looks like you probably average, what, two or three papers at least. Something and, like that, yeah. Um, and you've done a couple book chapters and uh, essays through the years. So what um, motivates you to do that amount of writing? Because I see, I imagine, is, I, well, let me ask two questions. One, is that a high amount? relative 
for the general profession? Yeah, you know, I, I write about things that interest me, yeah. um, and I try to make sure that I'm, I'm passionate about most of the things I write about. That's so um, a lot of the passion derives from, interestingly enough, teaching. So you know, yeah. you teach something enough, questions come up during class, conversations happen where there aren't clear answers to certain questions, yeah. um, and that often becomes the motivation for something you want to study in more depth and write something about. Yeah. So for me, that's kind of been the source of a lot of my interest in what I write about, has mm-hmm. been over time, questions that are unanswered when I teach particularly whenever I teach my police accountability class. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of students here have had me for uh, 1L criminal law or for evidence. Yeah. Uh, but really, my research is primarily in the scope of police accountability and then some sentencing policy. Yeah. Which are kind of just like smaller subfields, uh, just kind of adjacent to those other classes. So yeah. really, the class that provides the most like inspiration for my writing, I would say, is police accountability and yeah. the kind of conversations I have with students and the things we talk about, I and mean, when we kind of realize as a class, here's a really interesting question. We don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's, there's some research to be done in that space in the future. Yeah. And then you're like, I guess if there is, I'm going to do something it. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> something like Fair that. enough. So is there, um, and this is a, a weird question I recognize, mm-hmm. but like, is there a goal with your research as you move forward in your in your career? Is there is there a goal that you're trying to reach with your research or a, a, a uh, ever-evolving question that you are trying to answer. Yeah, so I would say I have a couple of broad thematic um, like topics that really interest me. Yeah. So one broad thematic topic that I think you could put a lot of my research in is the exploration of the effect of discretion um, on criminal justice outcomes. Okay. That may sound kind of just nebulous and mm-hmm. out there. If you think about it, like it's really one of the most central questions that you think about whenever you take 1L criminal law, criminal procedure, and other kind of criminal law-related classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, you know, one of the, my recent papers was on what happens whenever we give police officers the discretion to engage in pretextual traffic stops. Mm-hmm. My other pieces of research was on what happens whenever you uh, remove the, the discretionary authority from trial court judges to issue um, any sentence within a statutory range whenever you actually give them say, presumptive sentencing guidelines. Yeah. So a lot of my research is about that kind of question because it's a recurring sort of theme right. in the broader discussion of criminal justice policy. Um, so I would say I would like to continue down that path of trying to explore that in different ways because yeah. I think it is like the central question yeah. um, in criminal justice policy. Um, more generally, I think I'm just motivated by a desire to advance knowledge. I know that just sounds kind of cliche, but like mm-hmm. honestly, there's a lot of things we don't know about just because of the decentralized nature of our justice system that... Uh. Gathering and putting together useful information um, is really kind of the goal. Right. Um, so that's kind of my driving ambition is to expand knowledge, um, to answer a couple of or add pieces of, of knowledge to broader kind of uh, difficult to address questions like how we balance discretion in criminal justice policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, there is no like end goal where I'm going to say, all right, I've done it. I'm finished. Right. So that, <laughs> right. That, that's I've the nature of research is yeah. that if, if you really are avid about what you do, there is no end goal. You're just constantly trying to learn more and evaluate uh, the effects of new policies. There will always be new criminal justice policies passed. There will always be a role, I hope, for someone like me to analyze, is that policy effective? Is it achieving the outcome that we want, et cetera? Yeah. No, that is fair. In all of you, in the years of research that you've been doing in, in this area, has there been anything that you found incredibly surprising um, that still sort of sticks out in your head? Like, wow. Um, by and large, I would not say my research has not produced a result that to me is 
like shocking mm-hmm. or stunning. I mean, a, a lot of research is premised upon um, a hypothesis you may come into. Right. So, so not not all not all my writing is empirical. Some of it is just policy kind of mm-hmm. doctrinal work. Right. Um, but in terms of when it's an empirical project, a lot of times you're motivated because you have a good sense of what you think the outcome will be. Right. But even if you have that good sense, being able to empirically document it is valuable. Yeah. So for example, I wrote a piece with the president of the Alabama Sentencing Commission and another common co-author, uh, a couple co-authors in Alabama. Um, we were looking at the effects of different sentencing guideline structures on judge behavior. Yeah. I think we knew exactly what we were going to find. It was yeah. pretty predictable. If yeah. you confine discretion, you're going to see reductions in racial disparity, reductions in inner judge disparity. Yeah. I would be actually pretty shocked if we didn't find that. Well, what we found is consistent with what you'd expect, is that those those policy measures had the effect you think they would have. Right. But even just knowing that is valuable. Like yeah. then Once we know that, you can go to those policymakers, in this case the Alabama Sentencing Commission, and say, this is working as intended. You're yeah. actually achieving those results. and. Maybe we want to continue down that path of trying to have some guardrails upon a, a judge's discretion. Yeah. So, like to me, it's it may be um, a great story to be able to say I found something that was shocking and unexpected. Yeah. But often the papers that I do actually just validate kind of what you'd expect. Right. Yeah. If, if it's a little right. different than what you expect, it's still very much explainable by other existing theories. Right. No, that is fair. That is fair. Sort of shifting gears just yeah. a touch. So you know. You do a lot of research. You're a professor. Very good one for those. I had him. A very good That's professor. That's nice you to say. In terms of practicing, so you went to law school. Did you pra- Have you ever practiced law? No, I took a different path than some folks take. Because yeah. I took the route of getting a PhD, yeah. um, that was the route that I took in academia. Yeah. I think one of the great things about being at a big school like Loyola is yeah. that, for example, if you're taking um, criminal law classes at Loyola, you have a group of professors that have all taken different paths to get to where they are today. Yeah. So you have folks like Professor Janine Bell and myself who took kind of the PhD route primarily yeah. to get into where we are yeah. um, and do kind of work related to our professional expertise. Yeah. You have folks like Professor Cook who worked as like a prosecutor and yeah. had that kind of background of prosecuting cases and yeah. kind of the stories that can come from that and the lessons and expertise that can come from that. Right. You have someone like Professor Dane, uh, John Dane, who worked kind of in the military justice system and has that kind of view on the criminal law. Right. Um, and then you have someone like Professor John Bronstein, who worked uh, in the civil or like uh, uh, on the uh, civil side. So you have yeah. like all these different perspectives of yeah. people that can bring together all their knowledge. You have someone yeah. like Dean Strang, who, as I'm sure people are aware, you can watch him at action or him in action um, in making a murder on yeah. Netflix, right? So <laughs> right, all these right. different perspectives. Yeah. And like, I'm not going to pretend like I have um, the same exact background um, and can provide all the information that Professor Strang or Professor Cook or others have. Sure. But also, I, I would like to say that I think I also have some skill sets yeah, that others no, don't. You know? And that's why yeah. you know, I can serve on things like the uh, Racial Profiling Prevention and Data Oversight Board yeah. uh, for the state of Illinois and help yeah. provide guidance on how to like develop uh, documentation of traffic stops and how to measure racial yeah. bias in traffic stops. And you know, everyone comes at it with different skills, yeah. um, and those are the skills that I have. You know? Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So I have this on my, my notes here about the Racial Profiling uh, Prevention Data Oversight mm-hmm. Board. So you were um, appointed to that board by Governor Pritzker mm-hmm. uh, in, what, 2020? Yeah. Uh, so congrats on that, which, uh, I mean, I know it's two years old, but, you know, I only learned of it, so congratulations. <laughs> so, like, what's the purpose of the board, and w- as a member, sort of, where is your role, and how 
does how do you fit in that? So I'm the I'm the state's academic advisor. So I think my goal or my 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 role rather is to provide um, an academic perspective on what the literature says about say best practices for evaluating bias, providing guidance to the team that they hire to produce the annual report. Um, as well as kind of providing that perspective on the academic literature on these issues. Yeah. The, the, the goal of the, uh, the board is exactly what the name suggests. Yeah. The goal is to reduce the prevalence of racial profiling and require that jurisdictions provide useful data yeah. uh, to help document the race of those that are stopped by police officers in the state of Illinois. We're one of a handful of states that do this and actually keep really good, or I want to say fairly good yeah. uh, state data compared to what many states make available, mm-hmm. uh, which means that you can go online and you can actually look up data from a lot of places across the state of Illinois on the race of those stopped by police officers. Yeah. As if you've, you know, for those who have taken my uh, police accountability class, this doesn't necessarily always answer the question of whether or not that data is enough to prove the presence of racial profiling. Yeah. That regard, that you know, that relates to a bunch of other complicated empirical questions about the proper baseline, who's actually among the people that are being policed in that community, yeah. allocation of resources and manpower and geographical uh, location of that manpower. But having the data is really important. Yeah. Um, and you can't do any of those bigger things until you actually have that data. So yeah. to our credit as a state, we have that data. Yeah. Um, and there's some efforts ongoing um, for us to try to improve what data we're keeping, what the form looks like, how we make sure we have compliance among jurisdictions. And that's kind of all the role of the, yeah. of the board is to try to provide um, some advice uh, to the Department of Transportation and to uh, the Attorney General on like best practices going forward. Yeah, oh, excellent. Uh, and we are running low on time, so sure. I will. Um, sort of, I have two. Well, I have three ending questions. This lot or this last sort of group of questions is sort of centered around success. And I know we've talked a lot about your research, uh, but I find your area of research fascinating. Um, how would you? How do you measure your success in your research and your advocacy work? With the, you know, like on the board, and I'm sh- sure there's other capacities in which you use your knowledge to um, advocate. So, how do you measure success in, in those areas? In that That's area? a difficult question in academia generally because yeah. our, you know, one of the the jokes we kind of make is that no one actually reads the stuff that we produce. <laughs> I'd like to think that that's not actually true for a lot of what I do, and yeah. I know that because um, I've worked with city attorneys and auditors um, and mayors across the country um, Mm -hmm. to explain my research and they've used it in their development of internal policies, particularly for police departments. Um, I'm not going to go through the list, but like there's like I can at least look at that and feel confident that like what I'm doing is not just being put out into the world with no one actually looking at it. There are people in positions of power in large cities um, that are using it to develop their own policy. And it's it's I'm happy to to feel like it's at least influencing how. Uh, they're going forward and developing internal policies for police departments, internal disciplinary policies, internal appellate policies, very in the weed things that mm-hmm. uh, may not seem that important to a lot of people, but actually really matter when it comes to accountability and right. making sure that we can um, have a police department that is truly under community control and is advancing community interests. So yeah. that's one way that I try to measure my success is like, do I, do I have those regular touch points with policymakers? And I feel like it's actually influencing kind of what they're doing um, at the local level. Yeah. Um, the other things that people in academia care a lot about are things like citations and cases, yeah. citations by other scholars or researchers rather, um, you know, citations in law reviews or other social science journals. Yeah. So I care about those like anyone else, of right. course. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, to me, like, I think the greatest indication of, like, your research actually mattering is if some policymaker reads it and then uses it in developing their own policy for their city, state, yeah. or community. Yeah, no, that's excellent. 
Uh, and then sort of same question, but in your role as uh, the Dean of Academic Affairs, how do you measure success in, in this role? Yeah, that's, a much, that's also a pretty hard question, but I would say some things are just basically meeting deadlines, <laughs> making sure that whenever our faculty go up for promotion or tenure through our university system that I get them and shepherd them through that process successfully, that's a success for me. That's fair. Whenever I feel like the schedule actually gets to the registrar and I yeah. contacted everyone and yeah. got all their information, hopefully that's a measure of success. Yeah. Um, there's lots of other potential measures of success that I think are more like you know, like law school wide in terms of uh, you know uh, law student satisfaction, making sure that uh, there's an adequate number of classes that meet their needs, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a work in progress for sure. Yeah. Um, the other thing is a lot of my job is a bit faculty facing, so yeah. some students may not actually see the kind of things that I'm doing to kind of keep the faculty abreast of policies and making sure that we're complying with university mandates. Yeah. Um, but I like to sometimes tell my colleagues that. <laughs> Um, hopefully you don't know that I'm here and I'm actually keeping things, keeping the train on the track and right. keeping things working. If yeah. I can do that much, I feel like I will have accomplished uh, what I'm hoping to do during my limited time in this role, you know? That is fair. Uh, and then final question, what, so since this is a, a episode on getting to know administration, what is something that you think people will be surprised to know about you? <clears throat> oh my gosh, about me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. I don't know if there's a, um, anything that I, uh, I, I'm pretty open about myself when it yeah. comes to my students in class. Um, Are you a professional tango dancer? I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. I'm not a professional tango dancer. I'm a big baseball fan. Okay. Uh, I really, really love baseball to yeah. the point that I was like, used to watch, um, probably well over 150 games a year whenever uh -huh. I was younger. Yeah. I was, I mean, that's borderline obsession, but I would yeah. watch a lot of baseball. Yeah. I was really in the, into the statistical side um, of baseball. Yeah. Um, so if you ever want to talk about baseball, I guarantee you I have a lot of opinions and lots of thoughts. I read fan graphs. I read uh, uh, a lot of specialized blogs on baseball, and I'm really interested in kind of the, the, the statistical side of measuring yeah. baseball players. So, so you were always meant to be a researcher. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, the kind of person that likes to like watch baseball games with fan graphs at my, at, right. like right, right beside it so I can look up lots of detailed statistics about yeah. what's happening. You know? Yeah, that's fair. Um, for sure. So are you a Rangers fan or a Cubs fan? Or yeah, I grew up as a Ranger fan, okay. for sure as a Ranger fan. Yeah. Um, now that I'm in Chicago for the long term, it appears, um, I've been trying to watch a lot more Cubs games yeah. and trying to kind of shift over my allegiance, but I'll admit it is... It is hard to break that, <laughs> that that allegiance you have from your childhood if right. you watched one team growing up for so many years. And was I was an avid fan both whenever the Rangers were terrible, yeah. like awful for yeah. like a decade, yeah. and then whenever they went to the World Series um, a couple years in a row. It's like so vindication. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to break to, to, to break that personal allegiance. Yeah. But I'll admit I'm now trying to watch primarily Cubs games and trying my best to shift that allegiance. To the oh, that's, yeah. There's no reason to keep it. Be a Ranger for fan forever. No. Yeah, for Excellent. sure. Well, no, I appreciate your time. That's all from us here at The Povicate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepovicate at gmail.com. Visit our website, thepovicate.com, for more information on this episode and our guest. The Povicate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Palowitz. Our associate editors are Neko Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane 
and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Povicate.